By some estimates, the amount of people experiencing chronic health problems is about to spike, or maybe already even has, due to long COVID. And certain devastating diagnoses, including particular types of cancers and autoimmune conditions, are rising, especially in younger people. This is all amidst a backdrop of increasing mental health problems and skyrocketing stress. Is there any hope for wellness in a world where so many of us feel increasingly sick? Today we're talking with health psychologist Dr. Marnie Amsalem to make some sense of how psychological support and treatment can be connected to physical health. Where is the line between physical and mental health? What psychological support works well for people struggling with physical health problems? How can technology help and hurt? And what do we do when we're up at 3.30 a.m. and our mind is cycling about all of it? If you're ready for a conversation about all the ways to think about health, you'll want to join us for today's Baggage Check. Welcome. I'm glad you are here today. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about whether a college has actually ever offered a class in underwater basket weaving. So let's get going. Today I am particularly excited. And that's because we have on licensed clinical psychologist Dr. Marnie Amsalem. She has a specialization in health psychology and consultation. And we've got her on to talk about how all of us are waking up at three in the morning and unable to get back to sleep because we're thinking about whether or not chat GPT can take our jobs. Nope, that's not really true. We do talk about the 3 a.m. insomnia cycle, but we also are having her on to talk about way more than that. Dr. Amsalem is a licensed clinical psychologist who sees patients in several different states And she has a ton of expertise in the role of psychological support for physical health conditions. This was a great conversation about everything from meditation apps to back pain to journaling to individual differences to how to convince someone that therapy can help with health problems and what direction our culture is moving in in terms of wellness. So I'm thrilled you're here for it. You can learn more about Dr. Amsalem at her website, smarthealthpsych.com. Here we go. Well, I'm so excited to have you here, Marnie. Welcome to Baggage Check. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. Yes, it's so great to be able to talk about these issues because I find lately that people are really starting to understand that mental health and physical health, it feels like not only even just that they're intertwined, but they're one and the same in so many ways. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to have you. Why don't we start by hearing a bit about how you got interested in health psychology in the first place? So it sort of was a bit um, by chance, as, as things often are in life. But when I was looking at graduate school, I wanted to study stress and coping. And so I was looking for where I could do that and where I ended up going. The track was within um, a health psychology um, concentration. So Mm -hmm. in so doing in my coursework and of course, in some of the research I was doing in grad school, I realized that um, this was fascinating to me because what I really loved about 
um, studying stress and coping was that individuals all approach things uniquely, right? And so if the, mm -hmm. if there is a common stress, such as, you know, a new diagnosis of something, two different people will respond two different ways. So that mm -hmm. was something that has always, um, uh, you know, that's fascinated me and compelled me to want to stay in that space. Yeah. And what kind of changes have you noticed over the past couple of decades since we were both in grad school? It's been a little bit of time. We were, I know, very much on the same timeline. And, yes. you know, as I mentioned, I do feel like people have gotten more understanding in the physical health realm that yeah. mental health is right in there. Is that something that you see too? Is that something that you see in the general public? I think so. Yeah, I think that there's definitely been more openness and acceptance to that. I think, you know, with some of the tools that we have accessible to us, um, because in that time, I know we're, we're going back in time to um, when we were in grad school. I mean, there were no smartphones, there were no, yeah. you know, apps, right? And so things like meditation apps, right, essentially is bringing in the mind and body. And that's sort of at the root of what is, you know, what health psych is. So, so I think with the openness and acceptance to realizing, yeah, the things that we do, the things that how we treat ourselves um, really has uh, an effect on how, how we are feeling physically as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this the sheer volume of changes and advances in terms of the average consumer or the average person seeking mental health services, they have so many more avenues now because of the technology. Absolutely. You know, do, you, do you find some of that promising. I know I'm oftentimes talking about negative aspects of technology, but certainly there have been so many positive aspects as well, I think, especially in health psychology. I am that, a right? huge fan of mobile health applications that are well vetted and validated to do what they say that they do, right? So that there's mm -hmm. evidence base behind them. They've been tested in research um, to show that there have, you know, that these tools are effective for so many reasons, but it makes things accessible at our fingertips for everyone, typically in mm -hmm. a very cost-effective way. And it really helps in terms of mental health with combating the um, access and affordability issues. Yes, that so, makes a big difference, yes. I'm sure. So you mentioned meditation, and that's certainly mm -hmm. something that I see in a very practical way all the time with my clients, that it's one thing 10 years ago for me to have said, hey, here's a script for a meditation, and maybe I can give you this recording. It's another one now for me to be able to say, here are 30 different places you can look and see what's out there. And maybe right. you like this person's voice, or maybe this works best with your phone, or maybe this one is the one that really resonates with you. They have so many choices. This has been incredible. I love it. That is very much a positive of the space in which we are in right now. I don't know if you remember at any point in your training handing out a cassette or a CD of, <laughs> yes. of one person's voice, right? Yes. Yeah. One person's voice. And mm -hmm. now, I mean, I've had conversations with clients just very candidly, like, oh, that person doesn't really resonate with me, but this person's voice is amazing Absolutely. and is extra soothing. And I think that's so, so wonderful. You know, it seems like mindfulness meditation is one area where 
it's really empowering to be able to say, let me try a bunch let of me, different yeah, things. Yeah, let me try, let me choose what works for me, for sure. And I imagine the privacy too, to be able to be alone in your room and have the smartphone and say, I'm going to have this experience right here, just with the device that I have in my pocket. Nobody else has to see. I don't have to check something out of a library. Of course, maybe the privacy settings on your phone mean that in some abstract way, somebody else is seeing. But I do think that- yes, we're, we're, That is not the focus of what we are talking about today. <laughs> but I would also broaden it beyond to being in your own room with you know doors closed. It, this could also happen when you're sitting in your workplace or in a waiting room waiting for an appointment that you're feeling a bit apprehensive about. Mm -hmm. So you can use this tool anywhere. Yeah, and that's mm -hmm. what makes it so positive. So thinking about waiting rooms and appointments, mm -hmm. and I know you have a lot of experience working with people who are really transitioning to difficult types of diagnoses in the health realm. Yeah. What kind of trends have you seen in that in terms of whether or not people recognize that therapy could be helpful? You know, I've got this diagnosis, for instance, that's traditionally thought of as being just physical health related. Have you seen a bigger willingness in maybe the medical health community as well to steer people into mental health treatment over time? Absolutely. That has been also a positive, a trend in the positive direction. Um, I think that there's a lot of physical complaints, whether we're talking about pain, particularly related to back pain, but it can be in a whole lot of other physical, you know, regions of our body where as the medical issue is being assessed, it is clear that there are some other life stressors or just approaches to the life that are interfering, mm -hmm. that are really contributing, um, whether or not they are the etiology or like the cause of the you know physical complaints, or they are maintaining the complaint, it is clear that uh, addressing these you know the mental health aspects are part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And what would that typically look like? Would it be? individual therapy? Are group therapies particularly helpful in this way? Sure. Are self-help techniques really helpful? All of the above. It really depends on the problem as well as the person and you know individual preferences. So if it is kind of going to you know the example of back pain, um, and it's clear that there's a whole lot of life stress happening, um, you're kind of feeling like unsolvable problems or not getting enough sleep, right? You can kind of target you know, some problem solving or addressing if there are underlying mental health diagnoses and targeting the cause of those problems, certainly, and working on some strategies for stress management and for improving sleep. Mm -hmm. Sleep is so huge in so huge. many of these things yeah. because I think so many health issues disrupt sleep. Obviously, mental health issues can disrupt sleep. Mm -hmm. And then disrupted sleep makes you physically less resilient, makes you emotionally feel worse. And Absolutely. so the cycle starts anew. And it really seems a little problematic that even folks that aren't struggling from physical health issues, their sleep quality has not been great in recent years. There's some mm -hmm. troubling data on that. Yeah. So when we are having difficulty sleeping, it can certainly be contributed by many different things, whether they are environmental things going on in our home or in our you know, lifestyle, like 
crying babies and, and things like that. Or they are stresses like unresolved things, worries that we have that are staying with us. Um, mm -hmm. Unsolved problems, they can show up and it becomes a bit of a reinforced cycle where we realize, oh, it's 2.30. That is the time for me to wake up and start worrying about things. Um, mm -hmm. That is a very common experience actually for people. Yeah. But when we do things behaviorally to try to facilitate our sleep, obviously this the level of challenge depends on you know the individual and, and how deep-rooted their sleep issue is. But when we make some changes to help improve our sleep, that of course has carryover effect into how we are feeling the next day, right? How focused we are feeling, perhaps our patience and you know, how open we are feeling to the, mm -hmm. the, you know, the challenges of the new day. So very much, we, yeah. we all know that a good night of sleep feels amazing um, and mm -hmm. you're able to approach the day quite differently. Yeah, I often talk to audiences about just evolutionarily how we are bred to be more anxious and negative when we're underslept because it used to keep us alive, right? It used to be a wonderful adaptation that, hey, if we're underslept, we can't run as fast and we're sluggish, we're more in danger. So therefore, our brains are going to adapt by seeing everything as being extra threatening so that we'll be on guard. And nowadays we don't need to run from predators so much. Now we're just at work and we're super annoyed with our coworker or we're super fearful of our neighbor or someone who's different from us just because we're underslept. But you know, it's interesting you mentioned too that that waking up in the middle of the night. I hear from so many people, especially parents, that even long since the time when they had to wake up for kids, there's almost that chronic conditioning of waking up and worrying about something in the middle of the night. You know, I work with so many mothers in particular who say, oh, there it is. It's it's 3.30 a.m. And maybe I got up because I had to go to the bathroom or something. But now my brain is cycling and I cannot fall back asleep. And it's miserable. Absolutely. Right. Yes. I think that is a, a, a human experience to have empathy to that because whether or not um, we have experienced a longstanding kind of habitual pattern like you're describing, or we've just had a night or two of rough, uh, non, non sleeping, right? We can, we can relate to that. But what you are referring to very much has been habituated where, you know, it's set in because mm -hmm. of life circumstance, right? But yeah. then there had been this habituation. Our, you know, we are behavioral beings, right? And mm -hmm. very much uh, learned associations. And if there is this, um, the internal clock that we have is is set, and we learn, okay, well, this is this is what happens. You know, at exactly three thirty one, we think about all of the things that we need to do tomorrow. It doesn't need to be a you know a big worry. It could also be you know just the everyday things too. Um, yeah. But those are things, you know, on the positive, these are things that we can address. These are solvable problems. Yeah. And so what typically is helpful for folks in that scenario, you know, something that in the light of day feels manageable. I think, again, we've all had that experience, like you said, where it's 3.30 and it feels just that much more formidable and terrifying, this thing that we're going over our head because it's dark yep. and we feel more helpless or hopeless about it. So people who are experiencing this cycle and it's really 
impairing them, what are first steps in terms of trying to break that cycle or even just seek out help for it? Yeah, I mean, so there is the approaches that I'm going to share right now are going to be borrowed from a very effective way to treat insomnia. Um, So whether Mm -hmm. or not we're actually referring to insomnia or just difficulty sleeping, um, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of behavioral things that we can do. And aspects of our thoughts that are reinforcing this and maybe kind of setting up our expectation of, oh no, I'll never be able to fall back asleep again. My Mm -hmm. morning tomorrow will be shot, right? Or these automatic thoughts that we are having, right? Mm -hmm. So a very effective way to treat insomnia is a technique called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Applied to Insomnia, which has Mm -hmm. a very behavioral component to it as well in terms of restricting sleep and resetting really your wake time to help compress the amount of wakings that happen Mm. during the night and improve sleep efficiency. And that is a bit of a mathematical equation of the amount of time that you are you know, asleep in, compared to the amount of time you are in bed. And you want it to be pretty high, right? Where you're not spending a whole lot of time in bed staring at the ceiling or tossing and turning. Mm-hmm. so to speak. So um, yeah, so some of the things you can do are um, when you notice you are tossing and turning, getting up out of bed and going to a different location because again, you want to pair your bed with successful sleep. So this can help reset you in your night of sleep. So going maybe to the couch, turning on a low light and notice I have not yet mentioned a smartphone. (laughs) I mention it now to say that would not be recommended by any means. What I would do is maybe even have something, if this is a repeated pattern, have something nearby that you know you can access. You're not even thinking so much about it. Maybe a boring book. I often tell people this, something maybe you've picked up so many times can never get into that would be mm-hmm. the ideal thing to you know to pull out at that time um because you will once you start looking at it you will probably notice you know physiological signs of fatigue like yawn and that is a sign that your body is saying yeah i am tired and this can be the reset that you need so mm-hmm. that would be um a go-to there but you know tossing yeah. can very much Uh, reinforce that frustration with not sleeping. Right. And what you said about those automatic thoughts becoming Mm -hmm. almost that self-fulfilling prophecy, I think it's so true in insomnia more than even most things, which is, uh uh-oh, now tomorrow is going to stink and I'm just going to be a mess. And that's a fundamentally inherently unrelaxing thought, which Mm -hmm. is why some of those paradoxical techniques sometimes are helpful. Like, okay, well, let me assume that I am going to be a mess tomorrow. Then, yep. you know, whatever extra sleep I get right now is just a bonus. Exactly. You know, I, exactly. I remember telling my kids that early on when they'd be like, well, I can't fall asleep. I can't fall asleep. I say, that's fine. Just enjoy the fact that your body is able to rest right now. And that's shifting the perspective in and of itself. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. You know, thinking about all of these issues, I think they're so intertwined and I think one thing that I that I notice a lot of is that health problems sometimes start to creep up. For some people, it's a very gradual thing. It's not, okay, I got this diagnosis yesterday, but it's, hmm, my back has 
kind of been bothering me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over the course of a few months, it's affecting how I sleep or, hey, you know, maybe some autoimmune conditions are like that. It's like, it's not like one day out of nowhere, it hits you, but hey, I've been struggling with dizziness or rashes that itch mm -hmm. at night. And it sort of gradually starts to seep in, you know, in your experience, when people are adjusting to new diagnoses or new symptoms, yeah. what kind mm -hmm. of emotional stuff goes along with that? What kind of things do you see that that could be helpful for them to work through? Yeah, I mean, it's so individual kind of getting back to, you know, one of the things that I find so fascinating, and really powerful um, about the facing that stress of mm -hmm. something's going on, right? Two different people can interpret the same news or same experience in different ways, of course. So um, really getting a sense for the individual, what this means and what this mm -hmm. might mean for them in the context of, of their um, overall life experience, for example, is this, was this an expected turn of events, right? That they are pre-diabetic, for example, they get that news, right? Mm -hmm. And they have a long family has history of diabetes. So there may be an expectation there that this was going to happen to them versus someone who did not and feels like they are on top of their health and making, um, generally speaking, making healthy decisions. So what is the meaning of that? And then also sort of in individuals kind of like predisposition to worry and anxiety and maybe mm -hmm. to conclusions there. So now I very much see that there can be a bit of a difference what like health issues can kind of live in their own sphere where they can mm -hmm. be huge triggers for anxiety for some people, whereas other stressors may not affect them quite as much. So this is, again, how some individuals are, uh, you know, we're all different. And that's pretty cool, right? So really getting a sense of what this means for them and helping them really address their thinking around it, as well as certainly any related behaviors. Yeah. Either to the medical issue or just their overall health and wellness such as, right, addressing how they are sleeping, uh, how they are managing their stress in general, um, mm -hmm. what outlets, what, um, how, where they are going for um, support, and how they're eating, how they're taking care of themselves, etc. Mm -hmm. And health anxiety being its own sphere, I mm -hmm. think I see definitely an increase in health related anxiety since the pandemic. You know, I think we were all kind of thrust into this world where realistically, we did have to worry about it. And we did have to worry about it for a really long time. Too. Yeah, I mean, anxiety is most often rooted in something real, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean exactly. it's <laughs> doesn't mean our brains then take it and um, you know, kind of map out the future to some catastrophic level, right? It, mm -hmm. it they very much can do that. But yeah, I mean, we, we've been living in definitely a lot of periods of uncertainty that have been shifting and we've had to kind of roll with it. And various points, there were different hurdles that we were all kind of collectively facing and trying to make sense of and make decisions about. And, you know, this has been an area where you really are seeing again how, you know, the role of individual differences, both in terms of how this health information and risk assessment is being interpreted, but also how decisions are being made. 
any gatherings that you may have had at peak moments in the pandemic. Right. And it's hard to know what's realistic fear versus what's right. excessive anxiety. I think exactly. there've been so many times where what we would have diagnosed three years ago as being excessive health-related anxiety, well, in the middle of 2020, it was probably very realistic. Sure. And people needing to spend a lot of mental energy on protecting themselves mm -hmm. from germs, for instance. And yeah. there's that contextual change of, okay, well, if this were 2018, again, I would have maybe been diagnosed with illness anxiety disorder. But now that there is a global pandemic that is life-threatening, it makes sense that I'm spending two hours a day maybe trying to protect myself or I'm not going to the grocery store in the same way right. or whatever it might be. Yeah. And that same behavior put in the context of, say, a later period, right, mm -hmm. where, you know, we are living with the virus, right? Right. But, you know, the world has certainly opened up right? Mm -hmm. That can be seen differently depending on the context. Yes. And the information yes. we have and right. the tools we have, you know, to protect our health, certainly. Right. 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 And our own needs to protect ourselves, yeah. whether we are highly vulnerable. Correct. For instance, you know, someone who needs to protect themselves in an extra with extra measures because of an autoimmune condition or a cancer diagnosis or something mm -hmm. like that. Yep. And I think we're just just hitting a pause there. I think recognizing that there are many who are currently living, and I'll say that knowing that there is no endpoint for this that we know of, um, right. with these realities that are still, you know, they're at heightened risk, right? And mm -hmm. despite having used some of the tools, or maybe not because they're not eligible for the tools of, you know, vaccines, um, that they are perhaps realistic concerns that they are dealing with and have had to integrate into their life and are making decisions differently than others in, you know, as the world has moved on a bit. Yeah. So to honor those differences. Yeah, to really honor them and to allow them to be seen, because I think mm -hmm. I have heard from a lot of folks who feel invisible in mm -hmm. that, you know, whether I think more generally with chronic illness or disability, and then also too in the context of COVID and needing extra protection and feeling like they've been left behind. Yeah. And I think maybe this is a, a larger question about folks that are suffering from chronic pain, um, or folks that are suffering from an illness that maybe isn't automatically seen as mm -hmm. they are at the grocery store, but they're suffering, you know, with symptoms that are almost debilitating, even though right. they're not obvious. Correct. What can we do as a culture to help empower these people to feel less invisible? Because I think a lot of them feel silenced. I think a lot of them feel ignored, even mm -hmm. in the medical community sometimes. And and we've seen some studies where, you know, for instance, people with disabilities, there's a lot of maybe discrimination that even goes on in healthcare. Yeah. And, you know, folks not being able to even get the care they need, which is ironic. You would hope that the healthcare field would be better about this. And again, we all have culpability here. I'm not trying to point fingers, but where do we go from here? I mean, I'm, right. I'm especially imagining that with long COVID, 
we are maybe anticipating even more folks dealing with sort of silent types of symptoms mm -hmm. and there mm -hmm. will increase in people with debilitating types of conditions. What can we do to, to recognize this more, to empower people more and to not make them feel so silenced and invisible? Yeah, I think, you know, back to your earlier question of what, you know, what I've noticed in the field of health psychology generally over the time that I've been in it is the greater awareness of mm -hmm. this being an issue and mm -hmm. openness to bring this to light. And I mm -hmm. think some of the facilitators have been, generally speaking, a more open place to talk about differences and bring you know, feelings of invisibility to public discourse. Mm -hmm. There's been that. I've seen within healthcare, within professionals, there being a, a whole lot more topics that are being um, discussed in professional forums on topics such as recognizing discrimination toward uh, overweight patients, mm -hmm. right? And in terms of bringing voice to this, you know, one, I'm, I'm about to once again, um, talk about some of the positives of social media, but mm -hmm. where everyone has a platform, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of people have brought um, their experience uh, feeling not seen, or mm -hmm. feeling, um, you know, kind of sharing what it is like when they park in a handicap spot because they have their handicap um, designation in their car and get mm -hmm. out of the car and it's you know and they look like they look to the outside world as a healthy person right mm -hmm. um, and so there is a place to share that voice mm -hmm. um, and certainly there's a place to share the voice of those struggling with mental health conditions which as we know very much might be invisible um, yes to the outside world yeah. yeah it's so true i mean most mental health conditions have at least a layer of being masked at least in superficial interactions Absolutely. i mean not all you know some symptomology mm -hmm. is pretty overt but mm -hmm. i think and in our culture, sometimes we put that sheen on it because somebody says, well, I didn't know they were struggling because they seemed happy when, yeah. you know, I saw them at work or whatever. And I think you're right in that social media has allowed people a forum maybe to yeah. speak out more and to find other to find other correct right to connect yes. with others um and it's certainly been beneficial that a lot of influencers right celebrities so to speak have come out about whatever their struggles were that to your point are being masked by the public persona mm -hmm. and recognize and saying if if i share my story maybe this will help others right yeah. and finding that it really you know, this really is something that people can connect with and can be inspiring for them to both bring awareness to what they're experiencing is worthy of paying attention to or getting treatment for or yes. sharing with others in their lives, mm -hmm. basically taking yeah. action on. 
Right. And mm-hmm. helping people get into treatment, I know, often is yeah. the goal if there is a mental health concern or if they mm-hmm. just need the support because they are struggling with something really challenging, yeah. like chronic pain or something. What would you say to a skeptic about that? You know, somebody who's really been struggling, they've got a new diagnosis, mm-hmm. they certainly are showing signs of anxiety or depression but they just don't think that mental health support, whether it be in the form of individual therapy or group therapy, or even seeking out sort of a a connection with others with this illness, they don't Mm -hmm. think that it would be helpful or they think that it is just beside the point or, you know, they don't see it as being connected to their overall health. What would you say to somebody like that? Right. I mean, typically those are not the people that we see coming into the office, right? Mm -hmm. When we are in um, outpatient settings where people are coming in voluntarily, right? Um, What I do hear a lot more of are those in the lives of people with whom I am working that are not recognizing um, the role of their mental health in how they are, you know, their interpersonal relationships, how they're showing up to work, how they are, uh, you know, making decisions and getting through their day. So it is very challenging to reach people that don't want to be reached, right? And Mm -hmm. that has historically been an issue. And the positive I can say is that overall, there are, you know, the trends are moving in the direction of greater awareness and recognition of there being tools that can effectively help people manage healthy tools that people can effectively use to manage um, challenges and whether or not it's framed in the context of, you know, a diagnostic label or if it's framed in the context of here are some tools that you can use to help deal, Mm -hmm. right? That getting that word out and certainly reducing the stigma around that, right? We can all use tools. And I like the tools metaphor. I've seen it be so helpful for people who maybe otherwise assume that therapy is sitting around and talking about yourself all Mm -hmm. the time with your feelings. You know, I think there's really an element of needing to help folks understand that really you're going in there to increase your ability to have these tools so that right. you can cope outside of the therapy room too. Absolutely. That it's it's that's the strengthening. whole point of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's one thing to, you know, reserve 45 minutes and talk about things, right? Mm-hmm. There's some utility in that. But the real work happens when you leave and you apply it to your life. Yes, exactly. And we've seen therapy and the ability to get these tools, I think, become more accessible with telehealth. That's certainly something that you are in the throes of. I know you're licensed in multiple states, so you see people from all over. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what people should expect when seeing a therapist online versus in person and and how to sort of weigh that in their decision making and and some of the ways that you've seen it be helpful but some things that maybe people should keep in mind too absolutely well talking on generally speaking about what can be extremely helpful about telehealth the accessibility right you can be in your own living room or private space anywhere in your residence, right? Really emphasizing the private space 
Um, you mm -hmm. want to be able to say things that you need to say with the privacy, but you can be there. And regardless of where your provider is, as long as they are a licensed provider in the state in which you live, it, it opens up the possibilities of who you can work with. And certainly if you are looking for a provider who is specialized in a particular area, and there's not that many who are licensed in your, you know, who are in your physical area that it's mm -hmm. easy for you to get to or who have availability, right? Who are open and accepting new patients at this time. So it opens up the potential to reach people and, you know, to have access um, from the comfort of your own home. And certainly for those with any mobility or, um, you know, kind of practical logistic concerns of, gosh, my job is so demanding, right? To go somewhere like that's another, like I have to factor in another at least 45 minutes back and forth at least, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that you don't need to do that when it's telehealth, right? Yeah. And if there are certainly, again, like mobility issues or you're a caregiver, you have limited bandwidth and carving out this time for yourself is a, is a big thing. Um, mm -hmm. It allows for greater flexibility and reduced, again, like logistic demands mm -hmm. on you. Yeah. And as far as flexibility may also uh, allow for greater flexibility with scheduling with your provider right. as well. Right. right. And those are the things that uh -huh. can make or break sometimes. You know, yeah. I think sometimes we think of those as being superficial things like, oh, you know, I don't have to commute to mm -hmm. the therapy appointment anymore. But in a way, sometimes that can be what helps somebody go in or not. That's exactly. the decision rule, especially yeah. when you think of all of the constraints on people's time. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say the flip side to your question, the, the downsides are... Uh, actually pretty minimal, but are real, which is that it may not be the appropriate form of treatment for certain mental health conditions. And it may not be appropriate for those who are not feeling comfortable, certainly either with technology or um, with having relationships over video. But the overwhelming evidence because there has been a whole lot of evidence on this are that the effectiveness of telehealth you know via video therapy sessions is just as effective in the vast mm -hmm. majority of cases because yeah. relationships can be you know if rapport can be established and um, addressing whatever the needs are that you're coming into therapy can certainly be addressed that way it, it fundamentally at that point comes down to preference would you rather be in a room with someone or are you you okay with not being Right. And so the caveats are important, but for most people, they really don't outweigh mm -hmm. the benefits. And I find that sometimes awkward things come up, like sometimes there are some clients, for instance, where it's distracting for them to see themselves. So we have to figure out a way for them to not be looking at themselves. Most of the technology you know. does allow you to mm -hmm. hide your window if you don't want yes. to see yourself. 
Exactly. Or sometimes the sort of very high achieving, busy person, hey, maybe I'll have another window up as I'm talking my therapy. And so I think we have to guard against that type of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. no, you're not, you know, you wouldn't check email if you were in the middle of a therapy session in my office. So (laughs) let's try to find a way to resist that urge this time. The other main caveat I see, and, and most of the time this is not an issue, I think sometimes you brought up the privacy, the private space concept, because that's so crucial. And mm-hmm. if somebody is talking about their family or their roommate or their partner, or especially if somebody is in a relationship that might have a controlling aspect to mm-hmm. it, I think it's very important that we find a way to protect them when talking and to create a truly safe and private space. Right. You know, I've had some, I've had some clients in cars, go out to their cars. Yep. Yeah, I clients in cars. Yep. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. and not driving. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear. Same. Yep. But you know, even if it's something minor, like you know what, I'm going to talk about my teenage daughter today, and I want to make sure that she's not in the next room. Mm-hmm. Or something more serious, which is, you know, I'm thinking of leaving my partner, and I need to make sure that yeah. that I can talk freely about this. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, it speaks, if anything, to the importance of at the beginning of the therapy relationship, really being clear about all this and being honest about it. And here are some of the drawbacks. How do we think that we would handle these? Because there is such a world of benefit to potentially come. We just need to make sure that we're doing it in the right ways. And I'll tell certain clients, you know, right off the bat that maybe it's not the best fit for online, um, Mm -hmm. just due to the nature of what they're struggling with. Right. But I think, as you said, you know, for most people, it can really be a beneficial arrangement just really positive. Yeah. Yeah. I would echo everything that you just said in there. All considerations. Yeah. You know, one thing that we haven't talked about, you've done a lot with helping people learn how to journal in a way that can Mm -hmm. be mentally Mm -hmm. and emotionally beneficial. Could you speak to that a little bit? Because I think that's one of those concepts that some people do it naturally and then other people kind of roll their eyes like, oh, are you going to tell me that I need to journal about my feelings? But you know, what I love about some of the work that you've done with it is that it really helps people realize ways that it can truly be actionable and truly make a difference. It's not just kind of this general idea, oh, you know, journaling is good, but if you do it in a targeted way, it has a lot of positive benefits. There are so many ways in which you can do it. Um, and certainly it can be that tool to help with those thoughts, get them out of your head that, you know, that do serve as a 3.30 in the morning, whether it is, again, kind of like working through a big issue or really just kind of getting those more like a to-do list, right? Kind of getting those mm-hmm. uh activities and actions that you need to do um, out of your head and putting them down. So there is, you know, that very practical purpose of it and, you know, the emotional catharsis of getting out whatever it is that you are carrying with you. It can be part of a very, uh, we were talking about tools before, a very uh, important tool for, you know, as part of a routine and Mm -hmm. routines feel good, right? So a lot of people do find um, some comfort and regularity in knowing that, yeah, this is something I can do to help ground myself in starting the day, or I can get out those things that I've been thinking during the day if I do this at the end of the day or whatever, whenever it works for you or however frequently. Again, it's it's uh, accessible to you to do, right? Mm-hmm. does not have to be thinking about it as a chore. That's not the most useful way. There's no need, right? It's a tool. 
it's something that you can use for many purposes, whether it is sort of like an emotional catharsis, um, helping organize your thoughts and figure out what is so distressing to you about the challenge that you're facing. Like, why is this getting you so much? And and when you sit down and kind of start somewhere, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be, and we can talk about that in a second, but you know, starting somewhere, you might find that it's taking you somewhere else and that in so doing, you've you've something's jumping out at you. Like you are realizing, oh, okay, this this is what's what this is the aspect of this that is really getting at me. Mm-hmm. Or as a place to start, that is often a barrier that people do have in journaling. Like staring at a blank page just feels stressful. Like I don't know what to do. And it can be like another reinforcer for them or another um, bit of evidence that that to them is saying, you don't know what you're doing, right? And that is not, that's not true. However, there are lots of ways that you can get around that by um, using some journal prompts. You can go online and find some journal prompts that speak to you. You can go purchase a journal that has some prompts that are already um, provided for you and use them as starting places. And one of my favorite things, and you know, some of the things that I've written um, has been to also leave some blank pages at the very end where you can take those same prompts that you used maybe two months ago and replicate them again later when you realize, okay, I am now approaching this. How am I approaching this right now? Let me let me see. Let me just use this. And maybe after doing this, I'll compare this to what I've written previously. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of just kind of letting yourself start without it having to be a certain way, without Mm -hmm. it having to be a chore, without it having to be something that you do right or wrong, right? It is right if you try it. Mm -hmm. And and that's as simple as could be. You know, you mentioned the idea of a blank page. Mm -hmm. Is there something really important about, I personally, when I think about writing stuff or collecting my thoughts or even just writing, hey, I need to remember to send that thing into the car insurance or whatever. I do find that writing with a utensil Mm -hmm. by actual writing is somewhat more helpful for me than, oh, I'm entering this in on my phone. But in this day and age, I imagine there's a lot of people who say, well, I'll journal, but I'm going to just type it in somewhere. Does that still have benefits too, I imagine? So you're not going to be shocked to hear me answer it this way, but we're all different, right? Yeah. So whatever works, like whatever is accessible for you um, mm-hmm. and feels right, right? So there is yeah. so, sort of like cursive writing when you write and, you know, we, we, those of us that still know how to write in cursive... Uh, where it's windling, where it's windling mass. Right. We're not even where a mass it, anymore. It might feel like you are more in tune with your thoughts when you are, yes. you know, having that proprioception and you know the physical mm-hmm. touch of the pen on paper or pencil or whatever it is. If that mm-hmm. if that works for you, fantastic. And what's nice about that is that you can then keep all of your entries in one place in a journal. However, if what is most accessible is having um, your computer with you at all time or your your smartphone, um, there are a whole lot of journaling apps that you can go to, mm-hmm. um, or you can just start a some sort of document where you are yes. recording you know, and entering yeah. it on your computer. There, I would recommend that that is uh, somewhere that you, again, feel like is a safe space. Right, that's a really important point. Or like password protected or something like that, if that yes. is what you're feeling like you're needing. Yeah, 
No, absolutely. Yeah. And I have a lot of clients that come in, even if it's not journaling per se. I mean, I have clients doing all, all sorts of things that work for them. And a lot of times it's even just record keeping for, you know, hey, I noticed my anxiety so this day right? and what triggered yeah. it. Right. And and they'll pull up their phone and it's right there. And, it's and like, that also okay. is, you know, again, speaking as a therapist, that's evidence, right? So mm -hmm. when you, it's, it's also information that you are using Mm -hmm. to help you better understand what you're experiencing. So exactly. and draw connections of, oh, right. When this is going on, this is typically my emotional response. Or what are the similarities? Or what are the patterns that have persisted over time? Yeah. Right? There's so much learning that can come from recording all of this. Yes. The noticing, you know, I find that's been a theme in several shows so far, mm -hmm. just the power. And of course, that's something that speaks to the efficacy of therapy and, and part of why therapy helps yeah. is the gaining insight yeah. that comes from noticing, you know, instead of, hey, I've been on autopilot doing right. this thing this way for five years, and I can't really notice the way that it hurts me or helps me. Instead, it's actually the observation. Of course, that's the heart of mindfulness too, right? Is that gentle, curious, non-judgmental observation. But I think there's such power in the noticing. And it seems like journaling is such a great conduit to that because, you know, now I'm, I'm looking, ooh, and this happened yesterday too. And ooh, every day mid-afternoon, I start to feel really irritable. And I didn't mm -hmm. put that together until right. I charted it for two weeks. Right. right? Absolutely. Well, there's so much here. I know we could we could talk for hours on this stuff. And I just think that it's so important that people realize that they're not alone, that when they're struggling with a physical health diagnosis, especially it might feel like they're the only one. And right. yet there's always hope to connect with other people. There's always hope to really get some space with mental health treatment where mm -hmm. it's your space alone and it's your space to be safe and to explore all of these feelings about it. I know this unfortunately is something that I do think is gonna become more of a concern over time as more people struggle with various diagnoses and mental health and physical health. It's taken a hit these past few years. You know, all speaks to the importance of, for ourselves of recognizing that mm -hmm. when, you know, when we are experiencing something physical that we should also check in on, on ourselves emotionally as well. Mm-hmm. Well, as those around us. Yes, to help take care of each other. So I really thank you for providing a ray of hope for folks today. Thank you, Marnie. Very welcome. I really enjoyed our chat. Likewise. Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts. We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Marini, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care.